The Pickleball Show is brought to you by PBX Club. PBX stands for Pickleball Excellence. Join today and get the latest pickleball tips and strategies, news, and opinion. Save money on paddles and other equipment with coupon codes to online pickleball retailers. Get travel discounts to tournaments and a whole lot more. How much does it cost to become a PBX Club member? Well, it's free. Just go to freepbxclub.com. That's freepbxclub.com. There's even a link in the show notes for this episode. FreePBXClub.com. PBX Pickleball Excellence. Join the club. It's free. This is Gail Leach, author of The Art of Pickleball, and here's the host of The Pickleball Show, Chris Allen. Thank you, Gail, and welcome to the show dedicated to helping you play better pickleball while having even more fun and meeting new friends who share your passion for this great sport. My name is Chris Allen, joining you today from Asheville, North Carolina. And what do you say? Let's walk on over and see whose paddle is in the fence today. From Collingwood, Ontario, Canada, just a couple of hours north of Toronto, it's our friend, owner of Third Shot Sports, which you can find at, oddly enough, thirdshotsports.com. He's a pickleball coach as well, and uh, he has just returned from the Nationals. It is our friend Mark Rennison. Mark, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Chris. Great to be with you. Now, we had talked last week with Wayne Mugley about the entire Nationals experience, the venue, the weather, the interaction with the different players. You, as a player and a top player, uh, I wanted to maybe dive a little deeper this week and talk about just your experience on the court actually playing in the nationals i always think of that movie uh, bull durham when uh, kevin costner you know he's he's been to the show they called it you know to play in the major <laughs> leagues is the show and uh, he's riding on the bus with the minor league players they all just want to know god you know what's it like in the show and he tells them well you know you hit you hit white balls for batting practice and they carry your luggage from the bus <laughs> to the hotel but you know he gives them tips as well in terms of actually playing the game you know they're going to light you up when you first get there but don't let it rattle you so today i wanted you to be pickleball's version of crash davis here if i wanted to go to the show next year i wanted to be in the nationals next year how can you coach me or what kind of advice can you give me yeah well i can assure you that you still carry your own bag you've got no one carrying your luggage for you um, on your way to the courts this tournament starts very early right so first round matches begun at 8 a.m uh you're expected to have checked in by 7 30 to let them know you're here and uh, so if you want to get a good warm-up in before all that happens like you are at the venue around seven which is a, a which is a pretty early start especially for people who are traveling to different time zones that can throw you off very quickly yeah you get there and um you know even for such an early uh early time that place is buzzing and whether it's the vendors who are setting up their booths whether it's the volunteers who are out making sure the courts are ready, whether it's the tournament organizers who are sort of giving final instructions, uh, whether it's the people in charge of referees who are sort of setting up the court assignments for them. Everyone's got their job and everyone is doing that job mm -hmm. uh, from seven o'clock in the morning or earlier. So it's quite an experience to walk in and feel the energy from that. You know, and those aren't even the players yet, right? That's just all the people that it takes in order to run such a, a great professional event. 
Now, what about the arid environment, the Arizona desert environment? Because the temperature swings can be wild. Uh, you read things about Mars, about how it can be 300 degrees Fahrenheit <laughs> <laughs> in the daytime, and it's 30 degrees below zero at night. And you think, well, Arizona is just one notch below that sometimes. When you see the uh, the weather reports, it's like, well, I fried an egg on the pavement uh, this afternoon, and now I need a jacket. Is it tough getting used to the temperature swings? Yeah, you know, it was interesting. It was, um, you know, this was a, a, an unusually cold week in Arizona, they tell me. You know, it would go down into the mid-30s at night, and uh, which, you know, for me is fine living in Canada. You know, and when you wake up in the morning, it was pushing 40, maybe. But it doesn't take very long until uh, the sun comes out and it starts to get pretty hot. So there were pretty major swings. How early do you know who you're going to take on? Do you just find out when you show up? Yep. So the way that the Nationals work this year is, um, so they used the tournament organizing system, pickleballtournaments.com, which is amazing. It's easy to follow. It's very clear. And uh, they would release the brackets at midnight the night before. So if you're playing, um, you would know you would know when you were playing, right? So the men's open singles is at 8 a.m., mm-hmm. for example. Uh, but it wouldn't be till midnight the night before that they would release it. So I'm sure, you know, those people who really can't sleep until they know who they're playing are probably staying up till midnight um, <laughs> to find out. And then there's others who they say, well, I'm going to play who I'm going to play, you know, and they wake up in the morning and check it. You sort of have a choice. You can, you can see who your first match is. Uh, and for those of us who like to, you know, take it one match at a time, that's all the information you need, right? Who you're playing and what court you're going to be on. Mm-hmm. But then for those who like to sort of see the whole draw and kind of map out, well, if I win, then I'm going to play the winner of this match. Or if I lose, I'm going to go to this side, right? There's some people who like that part of it. And as a coach, would you recommend against that kind of strategy? You know, there's so many variables, right? Someone wins a match and then that changes everything. Someone loses a match, it changes everything. Especially at this level where the margin for error is so slim. If you're spending any of your time and energy thinking about what might happen in future matches, that's time and energy that you're not spending on the match that's right in front of you. So my preference is to to not look at the whole draw and certainly not, to, if you do happen to see the whole draw, certainly not to spend much time thinking about it. So now you're on the court. What were some surprises? What were some things that uh, maybe you didn't uh, expect to see? There's a few things that surprised me the most. One was how hard a lot of the players served and returned. We've talked about this before. Some of the conventional wisdom was when it comes to pickleball. Just get it in. Yeah, just get it in. The first mm-hmm. two shots are kind of to like get the point going. Right. And then it's really the third shot and beyond where you start to construct the point. It is very clearly not the attitude of most of the players at this tournament, especially the players, especially the players at the open level. The serve and the return are clearly designed to, if not outright win a point, then to give you a strong advantage. So the speed that the serve is hit at, the amount of spin on the serve, the depth of the return. These deep returns, they weren't those slow, high, deep lobs that you might encounter in recreational pickleball. Mm -hmm. These were deep returns landing within six inches of the baseline that were hit six inches over the net, right? So they're intended to be fast. They're intended to be tough to get back. So they're ripping it, but they're keeping it in. Yeah. And the way they're keeping it in, um, one is keeping the ball fairly low over the net, so small margins. But the amount of topspin that players were able to use, and topspin, of course, when you hit the ball, it's spinning towards your opponent, Mm -hmm. it's coming over the top. Topspin's really 
really useful because it helps to shorten the distance that a ball travels, right? So a ball that's hit flat with no spin at, let's say, 30 miles an hour, six inches over the net. It goes over hard and then it it dips real quick. That's right. Yeah, it helps to make the ball drop. So in order to hit the ball as hard as as they want to, players have to start to generate more and more topspin. And how do you, when you encounter a ball with that much topspin on it, is there an adjustment that you need to make? Yeah, well, so you have to remember that that as well as as dropping into the court more, a ball hit with topspin also then bounces towards the opponent faster, right? So it's a quicker bounce. So you have to realize that that ball is going to, one, it's already coming fast, and two, is with the added spin, it's going to come at you even quicker. So having a quicker setup, having a shorter backswing, setting up your body sooner becomes even more important in order to get a good quality hit back. Well, and I think it's it's the natural evolution that uh, you and I have talked about. I know Matthew Blom has talked about it on the show. Jeff Shank has talked about it, that in the next two or three years, the serve and the return are going to be taken a lot more seriously. I think two or three years might be an underestimation. When you watch um, the best players there, they're not thinking about it two or three years. It's now. here now. It's here now. Okay. Yep. <laughs> We've talked about the serve and the return. Now, what about the third shot? Yeah, well, I think we need to distinguish a little bit between singles and doubles. I played both events at the tournament. And what I would say is that in singles, the third shot drop was rare. And this is a little bit to be expected because... Um, you know, when you're playing singles, you've got a person by themselves trying to cover so much more territory mm-hmm. that it makes it much easier to hit the ball past them. And so hitting a hard, low drive past a single person at the net is a lot easier than in doubles. So you'd right. expect more drives um, in singles. And for sure, I saw that. I would guess third shot drop was maybe used 5-10% of the time in singles. Mm-hmm. In doubles, it was used more, but not nearly as much as uh, I had expected. There were still a lot of players who were looking to use the third shot as a way to get their opponent off balance. Right? They would drive the ball at them, not with the intention of, of winning the point, but with the intention of making them play a weak volley. And so whether that's hitting the ball hard right at their body, whether it's hitting the ball hard down the middle, you know, I would say it was probably a maybe more of a 50-50 scenario where half the time it was a third shot drop and the other half it wasn't. Would you say the third shot drop is more of a shot of last resort? Uh, I don't know if I would go that far, but I would say that as players become so good with their touch, they become so good at dinking. You know, if you hit a third shot drop to me, it's true, I'm not going to be able to put away an easy volley, but I'm also going to, I'm also likely to hit a pretty good dink back to you, which, you know, sort of neutralizes you as well. Mm -hmm. So what I saw was that they're looking with their third shot, not just to neutralize the opponent the way we do with a third shot drop, but they're looking to to go on the offensive. Are they testing just looking for cracks in the wall, just seeing? Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And, you know, they've they've identified the player they're going to pick on. And let's let's see, let's give this guy a high ball, uh, you know, relatively high, but we're going to hit a hard and let's see what he can do with it. You know, I would way rather drive a ball at someone than hit a drop if I knew that their volleys are a little bit suspect. Right. It's a much, it's a much safer play, right? Well, a, third shot drop, a third shot drop is a very precise shot you've got to hit it's a risky shot too because you can miss it you can easily miss it if your touch isn't just right and i've you know i think about this so many times uh the thing that you said in in the second myth busting episode that you and i did you talked about bangers bang because it works for them mm-hmm. if you can hit it hard and it, and it throws somebody off or it rattles them or they can't get it back to you or they set you up with a high ball because they just happen you know they just got it over the net it's totally 
working for them. And I think that until it doesn't work for them, they're going to feed you those hard, hard drives, whether it's a third shot or not. What I noticed a lot, and I actually made a, I made a YouTube video of it, is what I'm calling a two-step passing shot. So Christine McGrath, um, who did well throughout the tournament in both singles and doubles, she was really notable in her use of this two-step passing shot. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, her opponents come to the net and whether it was on her third shot, the third shot of the exchange, or sometimes the fifth, she was very likely to drive the ball at her opponent and then move forward, sort of waiting for that weak ball to come back and then put it away, right? She would pounce on it. And so it's very clear that she she wasn't driving with the intention of uh, winning the point, right? Thinking, oh, she's not going to get it back. She expected it to come back, but she was looking for it to sit up a bit high and then she could put it away. So it was really like sort of a one-two punch. Right. I mean, she was a great example of doing that, but there were lots of other players who looked to use that combination of the fast low ball and then the put away on the volley afterwards. Whether she was the one who was then going to put it away or, you know, she played the mixed doubles with um, Matt Staub. Right. So there were, t- there were times where, you know, she did the hard work of driving the ball at the opponent and then it gets popped up and then Staub would put it away and, you know, he gets all the glory. But, um, <laughs> but that one-two combination, you asked me the question, how would you prepare? What could you expect next year? Mm-hmm. I think you're going to see a lot of people not just sort of playing a single shot and then reacting and playing a single shot and reacting. You know, it's a pattern. And of course, those patterns don't always stay the same. They vary, but, but that's one of the patterns that I saw a lot of. What about between men and women? Any differences there? I'd say the major one was the prevalence of the two-handed backhand for the women. It was amazing for me to see how many women out there were using two hands when they hit their backhand. So Christine McGrath was one example that I mentioned before. She used a two-handed backhand. Marion Blom, she used it. Stephanie Lane, uh, Simone Jardine, Corinne Carr. What's the big advantage? When you hit a two-handed backhand, it's generally the non-dominant hand that does most of the work. A lot of people don't realize that. So if you're right-handed and you're hitting a two-handed backhand, when it's done well, it's generally the left hand that's doing most of the work, hmm. um, pushing forward, and the and the dominant hand just sort of stabilizes. Uh, you can get a little bit more power. In a lot of cases, these are women who have come, again, from tennis, where the two-handed backhand uh, is a very prominent shot. So I think what you're seeing is people who, this is their comfort zone. This is the motor pattern they've developed, right? Mm-hmm. In their, you know, many of them are college level tennis players and they say hey i know how to do this it's now just with a shorter racket and a different ball and so i think that's what you're seeing like in the open women's doubles four out of the six women uh use two-handed backhands in the in the open mixed all three medalists uh in the mixed doubles they all use two-handed backhands is it something that there would really be an advantage in strategically or is it just a comfort level thing I would suggest it's a comfort level thing. As a coach, I mean, you would never, if you were starting with a a fresh player, you would never advise them to do a two-handed backhand. I wouldn't for a couple of reasons. One is the paddle handle is quite small. That's what I was wondering. Yeah, it's (laughs) tough to get your hands on there. there. The other thing that happens is um, you sacrifice reach. And so, you know, you can't reach as far when you've got that second hand on it. Mm -hmm. Very often, players who use two hands find it difficult to hit softer shots, right? The touch shots which as we know in pickleball is so important, right? Being able to hit those dinks or hit those drop shots. And maybe they have, I mean, they have younger legs. They can get to the ball to where the reach issue isn't that big of a deal right now, but in 15, 20 years, maybe it will be. That's a good point. I mean, one person who is particularly notable, Christine Barksdale, this woman, she's a celebrated player. She's Mm -hmm. an excellent player. 
she basically refuses to hit a backhand from anywhere on the court unless she's up at the net volleying. So if she's if she's returning serve, for example, and that ball comes uh, right at her body, you know, she'll she doesn't even really step out of the way. She just sort of drops the paddle sort of between her legs and lifts it forward. Mm-hmm. Even if the ball gets hit to her left side, she still uses that where it's basically a forehand. Her palm is facing the net, and she'll hit it from the left side of her body, still using that forehand. Now, what's interesting about her is she would then come to the net, and any time that she hit a backhand as a volley, it was always a swinging two-handed backhand volley that she hit remarkably well. And so, you know, that confused me a little bit. This woman who has such good use of the left side of her body, good enough that she can hit these great two-handed backhand volleys, was so reluctant to hit a backhand as a ground stroke from the back of the court. So I found that pretty interesting. That was one of the the variations that you would see out there. But again, she, you know, she's a great player and it works for her. If I was developing a brand new player, is that the technique I would suggest? Probably not. But it's tough to argue with success that Barksdale's had. Now, what about in terms of the stamina that it takes to keep going forward? You mentioned, you know, check in at 7.30, start playing at 8 o'clock, and the the final match might not be over 9, 10 o'clock at night. Any tips that you could pass along for for me next year when I want to go there and play? Uh, get running right now. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, the... The hard work is done beforehand, right? And it's it's a little bit like the duck swimming on the lake, right? You look on top and everything seems pretty calm and it's down below where you see the action is. What most people don't see is the amount of time and effort that the players are putting in leading up to the tournament to make sure that their fitness is good enough that being out there for seven or eight hours um, and just being at the venue sometimes for 12 hours isn't going to take too much of a toll on them. So it's the preparation that counts. Besides that, making sure that you've got ways to spend to occupy yourself when you're not playing it can be actually pretty draining to sort of sit around watching other people play all the time so you see a lot of players kind of find a little corner somewhere with some of their friends or some of their family they had a break and they pull out a book or pull out their ipad or or whatever it was to sort of not be thinking about pickleball for a little while if you're lucky enough that you're that you're staying close enough to the venue that you can sort of commute back and forth a little bit uh, you'd see some people do that the venues that we were at, um, both Robson Ranch and Palm Creek, were beautiful places to just, you know, walk around and see. So if you know that you've got an hour or so, taking a little walk is a good way to to rest a little bit. You know, it's hard work and it's a long day. And the people who take the training seriously in advance tend to, to weather that storm a bit better than those who don't. Well, sounds like good advice and uh, a lot of good things that uh, I can start working on today to get ready for Nationals 8 coming up in 2016. And if I wind up in Arizona next year and you and I face off against each other right in the beginning of the morning, I won't use any of these great tips that you've given me against you. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it, Chris. <laughs> it seems only fair. Well, thank you for sharing your experience, uh, not only at the Nationals, but but also the, the great advice and tips that you give via your videos. Yeah, it's, you know what, it's fun to make them. It's fun to get responses from people. I took a ton of video when I was down at Nationals. And so over the next few months, people who subscribe to our YouTube channel or our newsletter, they'll be able to see some of what we were talking about today in action and as well as uh, a whole bunch of other great things. Well, I look forward to it because I am a subscriber and I advise everyone listening to become one as well. And you can do that by going 
going to thirdshotsports.com and you can see and hear plenty more from our friend Mark Rennison. Mark, thank you again. Look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks, Chris. And I'd like to thank you for joining us today as well. And a big thank you to everybody who's been sharing the link to the Pickleball Show via social media and just telling people in their local club about the show. We really, really do appreciate your support. Hey, have you gotten your copy of the top 10 tips from Pickleball's three greatest coaches? Coach Mo. Deb Harrison, Brame Carnot, all together in one quick study guide that will definitely take your game to the next level. It's totally free. You don't need a credit card. All you need is an email address. Just head over to freepbxclub.com. That's freepbxclub.com, and we'll send it right over to you. Head over to iTunes also if you get a chance. Hit that subscribe button. You'll never miss an episode. And if you feel it's appropriate, leave us a five-star review. I'm Chris Allen. This is the Pickleball Show. And until next week, keep them low. The Pickleball Show is brought to you by PBX Club. PBX stands for Pickleball Excellence. Join today and get the latest pickleball tips and strategies, news, and opinion. Save money on paddles and other equipment with coupon codes to online pickleball retailers. Get travel discounts to tournaments and a whole lot more. How much does it cost to become a PBX Club member? Well, it's free. Just go to freepbxclub.com. That's freepbxclub.com. There's even a link in the show notes for this episode. FreePBXClub.com. PBX Pickleball Excellence. Join the club. It's free.